I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas, brought to you by Red Wing. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode 47. Oorah, Mr. Mark LaCour. Yeah, and thanks for saying that right, because you know there's a difference between the way the Army says that and spells it and where the Marine Corps says it and spells it. So can you give me an official, because I'm not a Marine, so I want to hear a real Marine do a good oorah. Yeah. Okay, so it's a lot quicker. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so you're ready to do this thing today? Oorah. I'm absolutely ready to do this. <laughs> we got a little feedback from the last show. I was a lot of feedback, actually. People were really enjoying the MMA conversation. And I don't know if I'm wrong about this, but possibly you got into MMA or actually it was a natural fit for you because you are a Marine. Yeah. Now this is going to be, people really have to follow on this conversation because I'm, I'm old. Right. And so there's, it's, so I got involved in martial arts before the Marine Corps, but in the, and my love was judo in the Marine Corps. I also did judo competitively in the Marine Corps and now, if you're a Marine, you go through something called MMA, which has nothing to do with mixed martial arts. It has to do with the Marine martial arts, but it's the same initials. But MMA in the Marine Corps, the Marine martial arts did not exist when I was in. <laughs> I know it's a bit confusing, but it makes sense in my head. What, so what kind of hand-to-hand combat did they teach back then? You had a, a Marine Corps uh, standard hand-to-hand combat. It was a mix of American boxing, judo, collegiate wrestling, uh, and bayonet tactics. And and so what they did is they just refined it, you know, as they move forward. What did you excel? What did you excel at the most while you were in the core? As far as hand-to-hand combat? Yeah. Well, it really wasn't fair, right? So I, I'm in the core with people that are from, you know, New York City, where here's, I'm from the country and I've been doing either wrestling or judo <laughs> since high school. So, you know, it, it really wasn't fair. You had some um, street fighters on you is what you're saying? Well, you know, you, you're talking about street fires, street fighters. Somebody that's actually fought a lot, whether it's in the street or not, is more lethal than somebody's taken all the martial art classes in the world, right? Because they have real world experience. Um, but but while you're going through boot camp, you don't really get to highlight that sort of stuff. Um, it's you know, everybody's everybody's a grunt. Um, you're all trained exactly the same. So um, I, I enjoyed my time in the Corps, um, and but the martial arts were there before the Marine Corps. And I got to give a shout out to K. Matthew Case for helping me realize this is the reason I'm talking about this, because he sent you a message on LinkedIn and he was pretty fired up that you, that that you were uh, also a Marine. And and he was more interested in the show than before once he found that out. Yeah, it, that's the brotherhood, right? Any Marine I meet anywhere in the world, whether they're, you know, 20 years old or 70 years old, we're all brothers, right? And we all have shared experience. And for any Marines out there, you, you know what I'm talking about. And if you're outside the Corps, especially if you're like the spouse of Marine, you don't always get it, but it's 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 a serious brotherhood. So, you know, I'm a big fan of Stephen Pressfield's The War of Art, not The Art of War by Sun Tzu, but The War of Art. And I'll, I'll put the the image that I've made of this, the how to be miserable passage in there. But he says in that book that the Marine Corps teaches you how to be miserable. And in a direct quote here, Marines love to be miserable. Marines derive a perverse satisfaction in having colder chow, crappier equipment, and higher casualty rates than any outfit of dog dog faces, swab jockeys, or flyboys, all of whom they despise. Why? Because these candy asses don't know how to be miserable. So two questions. Is that true? <laughs> and secondly, 
what did you get most out of the Marine Corps? So to answer the first question, I don't know how it is now. I suspect it has not changed much. But my memory of being Marine Corps was always being freezing and wet. So yes, the answer to your first question is true. And what did I get most? Um, the fact that there's a process for everything. Um, that you know, if something out of the ordinary happens, there's a process to deal with it. You don't need to freak out. Um, you can think your way through it. Um, that, that's probably the biggest thing that I you know I got out of the Marine Corps. Wow, that's amazing because you've told me that personally several times, and I guess I never realized that that came from the Marines. Yeah, I mean, there's other things I got out of there that aren't as life-changing, like um, weapon of opportunity. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't want to go down that route. But anyway, yeah, good stuff. All right, well, this is a blast. I'm sure we could talk about the Marines uh, all day, and I encourage every every Marine out there to start tweeting at at Mark LaCour so y'all, y'all can uh, enjoy the brotherhood. But we got to get into the stories that we have today, and we've got several of them. And we're going to start off with a story that's kind of following up on the Saudi Aramco talk that we had from last week. So number one story, key questions surrounding a possible Saudi Aramco IPO. Yeah, this is a good article from The Fuse, right? And they're, they're really mixing the petroleum energy with uh, politics, which is, which is always a good mix. And so they're talking about how uh, Saudi Arabia is saying they're going to take Saudi Aramco public. Now, in our last show, we talked about this, and I said there's no way that would ever happen, that they may take a portion of Saudi Aramco public, but there's no way they'll, they'll take the whole company for a bunch of reasons. Probably the biggest one is it's what gives the royal family its power. Um, and if you read through this article, it, it's a, a, a bunch of inputs around uh, what they think may happen. And the, the consensus in this article is basically they may take a section of it public, such as their downstream section, but they don't really think they're going to let uh, foreign investors into Saudi Aramco for, for several reasons. Um, the biggest one is that any corruption, and there is a lot of it, would be uncovered. Second, it would have to be cleaned up. And third, there's a lot of um, money that gets moved around that would not fit a public company's uh, method of doing business. I was going to ask about that because when you talk about an IPO, naturally I, I think about things like the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange. This IPO wouldn't happen on an American stock exchange, would it? No, no, it, it would happen in, and I'm not sure what the stock exchange is in Saudi Arabia, but it would happen in the Saudi Arabia stock exchange. Got it, got it. Yeah, because one person said that when I shared this out on Facebook last week, and I was, that's a good point. I never thought about it. OPEC countries aren't allowed to be traded on the NASDAQ or in America, are they, because they're a cartel? So be careful that. So um, Saudi Aramco has a U.S. division, which is actually traded on on U.S. stock exchange. So you can form a U.S. division of your company and as long as the taxes and, and it meets all the pu- the public rules for being a public corporation, all that stays in the U.S., then you that part of Saudi Aramco absolutely can be, tr- be traded like the New York Stock Exchange. One of the things that that because I, I I didn't dig into this very much last week, but it sounded like it was a lot of rumors. But the one line here about the board of directors, which will make its recommendations to the Saudi Aramco Supreme Council, so. It sounds like there's actually conversations happening within the company, not just rumors. Yeah, and there's, there's, I'm sure there's been conversations for a while. So the, the board of directors actually reports to the, the Supreme Council. The board of directors will make its recommendation. It doesn't mean that the council has to follow it. And the council actually has to bring it to the royal family, which you know doesn't mean that they have to accept it. Sort of like um, in our country, um, the, the Congress can bring stuff to Senate. And the Senate may or may not approve it, and they could bring that to the president. The president can still veto it. Right. One last thing. 
Talk about how much how much oil that they actually own. I, I read it was something like I don't even know sixteen hundred and six whatever times Exxon or something. Yeah, it's the largest recoverable reserves in the world. Um, if they go IPO, which I don't think they will, you're looking at a world record as far as valuation. Um, a lot of experts are saying over $1 trillion when it hits the market. So, um, And the other thing about the reserves, they're easily recoverable. They, they basically pump a gallon of seawater in the ground, and they get a gallon of oil out. Their costs are ridiculously low for, for getting that oil out of the ground. So um, high value, even in today's low crude price market, this is a high value um, 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 reserves in uh, Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but the question is, will it IPO? And I guess we'll have to keep following the story to figure that out. Let's move on to Bradesco tops Brazil's M&A rankings. It's a, it's a busy year for takeovers. Is this oil and gas related? Yeah, this has to do with all the corruption that's going on in Brazil. Brazil's economy has slipped into a recession. Um, their GDP has, has dropped by, I, I think, 30%. They're not in a good place, and it all stems back to the corruption with, with Petrobras. Um, the, the president of Brazil um, is trying to get, fix things. Uh, uh, they're meeting a lot of opposition. Um, there's this this thing in Brazil that they call a pizza party, and, and basically for years, if you were some um, high-level politician or some executive at Petrobras and you got caught doing something corrupt, instead of going to jail, you would go to court for some reason it would get thrown out and you would go home and have pizza with your friends to, to celebrate the fact that you didn't go to jail. So those were called pizza parties. <laughs> is that horrible? That is awful. Ring for how the corruption gets handled in the, in the country. Um, and, and that has basically taken down Petrobras. So um, when you think of Petrobras, who is the, the national oil company, think of all the stuff they needed, all the drill stem, all the pipe, all the computers, because of Brazil had a local content law, instead of all that stuff coming from where it was uh, cheapest in the world, it all had to come from Brazil. So companies like um, like HP that makes laptops, it was actually cheaper for them to go build an HP factory in Brazil so that those laptops could be Brazilian manufactured and sold to Petrobras. And think of that throughout the whole organization. So what's happening is as their oil economy shrinks, all of these smaller companies that were dependent on Petrobras's revenue are going bankrupt. And so there's um, huge mergers and acquisitions going on. And uh, Brasetigo is is basically a merging acquisition firm in in Brazil. So their business is doing well, which is sad because their business is doing well because all these other companies are going out of business. And so they're handling all this M&A activity. Yeah, and it says here that it's the worst recession since 1901. It's it's horrible. I'm a big fan of Brazil. I had a lot of hopes for that country when they make the when they made those deep salt discoveries. And it's just the Brazilian people, the ones that are suffering, right? You have politicians and executives at, at Petrobras put millions of dollars in their pocket and they're not suffering, but the local people are suffering because of this. I, I really, really hope they get this straight. So when it comes down to it, it's going to be a question of if they can cr- clean up the corruption. Yeah. And, and, and they, they're almost there. I mean, they, they, they're, you know, within inches of getting this stuff done. Um, but you know, it's, it's the culture of the country, the, the Brazilian people, too many of them think that corruption's okay, and that needs to change. And once that's changed, then the laws will change, and the politics will change, and then they'll get this stuff cleaned up. All right. We're going to move on to another country that's, that's working through its own corruption issues. And, and it's no small secret they, that we are both fans of, of what's going on in Nigeria. And I really, I've really found this. It's jdspura.com. A lot of really great legal analysis I'm finding on this website these days. And 
And so it's a legal overview of M&A and finance, uh, financing transactions in Nigeria's oil and gas sector. Yeah, James, this is great. You found a great article. I had never heard of uh, J.D. Supra, business advisor before, but this is extremely well written. And it shows what's going on as far as uh, M&A activity, but also what's going on from a financial point of view and, and how all that is affected by government policy. You know, Nigeria, you know, we just finished talking about the corruption in Brazil. It used to be worse in Nigeria than it was in Brazil. And I'll be darned if the president's not cleaning that stuff up bit by bit, piece by piece. And so this is talking about how there's, there was a lot of M&A activity in Nigeria's oil and gas industry, but it's being driven a lot from the domestic debt market, right? And they've changed the laws. So then it makes it favorable for the local Nigerian banks and, and financial institutions to invest into the, their own oil and gas industry, which, of course, leads to M&A activity. This is, this is good stuff. So – I got to I got to ask a question here because big names jump right off of the off of the screen. Royal Dutch Shell, Total, Eni and Chevron all pulled out of the country. Is that a bad thing? Um, For if you're a Chevron stockholder, yeah, you don't like to see that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's actually kind of cool. So what happened is they changed some of the laws in Nigeria, which made it not as profitable for the international operating companies, the the Exxons and the Shells and the Ennies and the Totals. So those companies decided to divestify their assets in Nigeria. And so what happened is the Nigerian oil companies with being financed by Nigerian banks were able to pick up those assets. So, um, you know, if, if you're an any um, and you were in charge of your Nigeria program, you're not too happy right now. But I think for the people of Nigeria, this is a good thing. Instead of all these foreign IOCs um, having a piece of this pie, you actually have it for yourself. Um, now, eventually, the laws will change where it will be worth investment from the from the you know the big independent operating companies, and and they nobody got rid of everything. They still have a piece of it, but this is just a way to kind of take those pieces that um, were were originally sold to outside of Nigeria and bring it back in the country legally and and without nationalizing. Right? These companies got paid for this. It's not like when Venezuela took over everything and they kicked Exxon and Chevron out, and, and those companies didn't get a penny. One of the things that that he focuses, or they, I'm, I'm, I think it's a couple different authors collaborated on this one, is the the different acquisition vehicles that you can choose from. What are the different acquisition vehicles when it comes to M and A activity? Yeah, you're going deep down the financial world, which which is not my expertise. I can tell you a couple things off the top of my head. So the Nigerian banks actually um, can invest. Um, you can have multiple people own the debt and pull their money together to own that that company that they just picked up. And then you can have actually some commodity traders. So so like here in the U.S., you have people that trade commodities. They can actually get their hands and use their capital to buy pieces of this business. And then I think there's still a limited role from outside the country. I think some international people can invest, but they've changed the rules where the international people aren't favored from the Nigerian people. Does that make sense? Yeah. In in terms of you said the laws will change eventually. Are they just changing right now to make it better for the Nigerian people? And once they get to a certain point, they'll open it up again? Well, the president doesn't confirm me like he should, but from outside <laughs> looking in, I can tell you what he's doing. He's changing the laws to get rid of corruption, right? Once he gets all the corruption out, he'll back off and lighten up on some of these laws. But right now, his biggest goal is to get all the corruption out. So before the laws were written where these foreign companies could invest and they got preferential treatment in some different ways, that's that's wrong, right? So not only has he, he changed the laws, but a lot of these um, contracts that were signed the last couple of years, he's going back and having his people review the contracts. And if it looks like it's not all up and up, he revokes the contract. 
So it's just his way. It's what he has to do right now to get things squared up. Okay, bringing it back to the domestic side of things, we got from Seeking Alpha, ExxonMobil and Chevron are poised to break out and lead the market higher. What are they talking about? Yeah, this is a good article by Seeking Alpha. So, so basically what they're saying is that um, the market thinks that we've hit rock bottom as far as crude price. And so they're starting to increase the value of ExxonMobil and Chevron because they're the ones that actually can lead the recovery in the market because they're so big and they're so efficient at what they're doing. Now, it's interesting. You know, We've talked about this in the past where I said we hit rock bottom, oh, I don't know, six months ago. I wasn't actually talking about crude price. right? I was talking about the actual value of the industry. Um, if you look at crude price, um, you know, we yesterday we were below thirty dollars a barrel. Um, I, you know, I I really don't see it getting much lower. But the, this whole article is built around the fact that uh, once the cruise, price of crude starts going up, because of Exxon Mobil's um, diversity, right? They're awesome offshore. They're great at refining. They have the International Petrochemicals Division. They're going to start moving ahead, and they're going to move ahead quickly. And Chevron's going to be right behind them. Um, and, and I think it's true. I, I think what's going to happen is these two large super majors um, are going to move ahead. They're both um, in a good position cash-wise. Their stock is devalued, but they have not got rid of any of their assets. In fact, they both have picked up some assets. So they're only going to start running ahead while the rest of the oil and gas industry is trying to pick up the pieces. One of the things it says here, um, Exxon remains the class of the integrated oil, the, remains the class of the integrated oil companies, IOC, and I'm glad we read that because I, I didn't know what you meant when you said IOC earlier. Will con, con, be with considerable assets in upstream exploration and downstream refineries. And is that basically saying that they're shielded from risk because they are so diversified, like you just said? Yeah, no, it's exactly right, right? So when one part of their business isn't doing well, the other one is. So the company itself is still whole. Got it. And one of the things it talks about here, they brought in Ed Westlake from Credit Suisse. And he talks about CapEx going dry and this whole CapEx, OpEx thing popped in my mind because we're talking to our new sponsor right now and they, they, they operate on the OpEx side of things. Can you help me understand what that means? Because I, I can say those, say those phrases, but I still have no clue what I'm saying. Yeah, and this is a good one to understand if you're a salesperson, right? So CapEx is buying your house. It is the cash you have to put out to buy the house. In Exxon's case, it's the cash you have to put out to buy all the stuff they buy. OPEX is the, the budget to run your house, your electricity bill, your cable bill, your water bill, your garbage bill. So it's the stuff that takes to run it, not to buy it. The reason this – and they're two different budgets. Typically in oil and gas, CapEx has to be pre-approved. So everybody in the company says what they're going to buy. It all goes in some spreadsheet somewhere, and somebody approves it or disapproves it, change the number. And at the end of that process, which is usually toward the end of the fiscal year, they are now set up with – and they know what their capital budget or their CapEx is going to be for the next year, and they can't vary from that. The OPEX doesn't matter. Think about your electricity bill. Whether that electricity bill is 100 or 300, you still pay it, right? It's not predetermined. The reason this is important for a salesperson, I'm getting ready to give away $10,000 worth of free consulting, is this. If you go to a client and you're, whatever your product or solution is that you're selling, and he tells you he has no room on his CapEx budget and he's telling the truth, you go, okay, I get it because you would have had to get it pre-approved from the year before. So what you can say is, Mr. Customer, what if I put it on your OPEX budget, which requires no approval? And then all you do is you lease it to him. It then hits his OPEX budget because it's a monthly reoccurring fee. Your company probably could care less whether they get that money in one lump sum or every month. And if they do care, you can find a lease company that will pick up that lease for you, write you a check for 100% of your lump sum, mark it up 10%, and then charge Exxon every month. 
So it's a way to get around that I don't have space in my budget because it hits a different budget in a different way. Does that make sense? Yeah, and 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 now I owe you a consulting fee, and so does everybody else. So <laughs> go to motopoint.com, <laughs> fill out the form, and uh, and and Mark Mark and his wife Melena can get you over uh, what a uh, invoice. That's awesome. I dovetailing nicely with that is is another seeking alpha story. Oil supermajors will balance the oil market, not OPEC. And I wanted to get your perspective on this one. Yeah, once again, another good article by Seeking Alpha. Basically, this article is saying that OPEC has political drivers, right? The super majors, the Shells and the BPs and the Totals and the Chevrons and the Exxons don't have political drivers. They have business drivers. So in this low crude price market, guess who's going to cut production? They are, right? So they're the ones that are going to balance the oil market, not OPEC. Now, that sounds like you're giving in, that you're losing to OPEC. But you're really not. If you look at this thing long term, what's going to happen is the super majors are going to come out of this in good shape, right? OPEC had a dip in their savings account, and the price of oil is not going to get to $100 again unless something really bad happens in the Middle East. So they're going to have they're not going to be able to rebuild that savings account. So we now, by going through this low crude price market, have pulled out a piece of OPEC's, particularly Saudi Arabia's, their safety margin. So they may be able to do this again down the road. But you know what? They may not be able to do it for a third time. So this is actually a good thing. And and, and, and Sneak and Alpha is absolutely right. You know, OPEC has influence on the market. The super majors have to deal with the business. They'll be the ones that are cutting, you know, CapEx spending and, and um, exploration, production will drop, and the, the market will stabilize. I guess the thing that's jumping out to me is, is how is that possible when you only make up 8% of the production for the world? Because the whole thing to balance the market is not supply and demand. It is the oversupply. The mm. oversupply, depending on who you listen to, is between 1% and 3%. So if you control 8% of the market and the oversupply is only 1% and 3%, you can affect that swing. Actually, you can affect it very quickly. Got it. And so then the conclusion here, I think that significant production declines for the largest oil majors that retail investors love to own are just around the corner. It, it's already happening. It's, it's really so the frack fields are already declining, and you're already seeing the push out of uh, offshore and, and deep water projects. The production, the production curve is getting ready, to literally go straight down for the next three or four months. Okay, all right, good stuff. Now we're going to move over to Hellenic Shipping News, and they have a story about U.S. light oil imports shunned for shale resurge to highest in years. And the first line here, U.S. oil imports of light crude from across the Atlantic are set to jump this month to their highest in more than two years. And I guess my question is why? <laughs> so once again, James, great article. Where the heck did you find Hellnick shipping news? No, I'm telling this you, this, this is, we got to give props to Dave Weaver. He's killing it, finding great articles out there and tweeting them. And also give props to all of you who follow myself at James on the second and then also Tribe Rocket. Because these these this whole show is curated from the stories that got the most clicks. Hey, yeah. Before I, I jump into this, let's real quick let's give a shout out to our production staff, right? Dave Weaver and uh, James uh, Gordy, just kicking butt, taking names. We love the work you're doing. You make our life so much easier, and you're actually helping making the show better. So hats off, guys. Definitely. So that so that's where this came from. Dave Weaver had the had the wisdom to tweet it out, and and a heck of a lot of people clicked on it. So. So back to the question at hand, why are they going up? Why are the U.S. imports going up? All right, th this follow along with this, right? 
So the U.S. produces light, sweet crude, and up until recently, we could not export it, so it was landlocked. Our refineries like heavy sour crude, right? But there's a group of refineries on the East Coast that actually like light, sweet crude, but they like the Brent crude from the North Sea. That's what they're set up for. And even though it's still called light, sweet, just like our WTI here is called light, sweet, the Brent crude is actually heavier and not as sweet <laughs> as the WTI. So the refineries that run that Brent, cool, Brent cool crude are set up for that, and they're the most efficient there. So the reason that you're starting to see imports go up is actually because of the low margins that are, are in refined fuels right now in the East Coast. So I don't know if when's the last time you filled up your scooter, but you know, as everybody's noticed, it's, gasoline's gotten really cheap. So up until you know just recently, these refineries, if they needed to, could pick up the the, the crude that was here landlocked in the U.S. and because it was devalued, you couldn't export it. It was landlocked. They had a price differential, and so you got it cheaper than you get the Brent crude, which made up for the loss of efficiency for that crude not being perfect for your refinery. Now that we can export it, that differential isn't there, so it's not as cheap. So now it makes more sense to, to buy the crude your refinery is set up for so you get the most efficiency and you produce the most gasoline of it. Make sense? It's clear as clear as mud. <laughs> clear as mud. I, I'm, I'm, I'm totally – I'm going to listen to that section of the show a few times and take notes and do some research so I can actually understand. So let me, let me, let me highlight. So at a very high level, um, those refineries are set up to refine the crude from the North Sea, not from the U.S. Until we could – while we could not export it, they could buy that U.S. crude – at a discount because nobody could sell anywhere. Now they can't because we can export it. So now it's cheaper to buy the crude the refiners are set up for. I get it. Okay, I get it. All right. And you've right. been saying Latin America can refine our crude, but it says here that a higher demand of imported crude in the United States is arriving at a bad moment for producers of Latin American crude. Is, is yeah, that true? That's low crude price market, right? The, the crude is so cheap. We really lifted that export ban too late. We should have lifted the export ban when it's $100 a barrel. Now that it's, it's literally so cheap, it's not as cost-effective to, uh, to move that crude from the U.S. to uh, Central and South America. Interesting, because there's a premium paid for that crude, we're moving it to parts of Europe like Spain. They're buying it at a premium. So um, when the price goes back up, you'll start seeing that crude being shipped to Central and South America. Well, uh, here three cheers for government involvement in manipulating markets. Anyway, so moving on, long-term opportunity, Fieldwood Energy CEO talks Mexico, Gulf of Mexico. And do you, do you know much about Fieldwood Energy? I've never heard of Fieldwood Energy in my entire life. Okay, so the 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 thing that stands out to me is that is that the the very per- first part here it says Mexican territory is a no-brainer, but we saw some very the market doesn't seem to agree in terms of auctions that happened last year. So how how could a a company say that in this environment? So if you read through this, their CEO, uh, Mac McCarroll, is talking about how long-term-wise he thinks Mexico is a good investment. And, you know, I, I, I think I'd actually agree with Matt. But then he talks about uh, his company is in no rush to reach oil right now, reach first oil, which is, is, which is what we talked about. The corruption still there, this low crude price market. Um, the, the Mexican market is undersupplied. So they literally – it's a weird dichotomy. They literally have enough oil and gas in Mexico to supply their own need. Unfortunately, they don't have the technology to get it out of the ground. So they're having to buy it on the global market, which is expensive and, and doesn't help the Mexican people. It, it, so go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. 
Yeah. So long term wise, um, once the corruption gets cleaned up and and, and uh, once the infrastructure is in place, then you can get the service companies, the well stimulation companies and the operators over to Mexico who are better at getting oil out of the ground, oil and gas than the Mexican oil and gas company is. Then they can use it internally and the companies that go over there can help will make a profit right now that profit's not to be had so i think he's right i think long term wise um i i think it's a good play especially for a mid-size operator or a division of a of a strong service company right now it's there's no money to be made there so you talked about corruption again one of the quotes here according to the mexican government there are 150 to 250 million barrels of oil on the blocks can you really trust what the mexican government says is there you can trust what they say is on the block. What happens though when you if if when you produce oil in Mexico and you end up sending it to a refinery, you know if you're sending three hundred thousand barrels to a refinery, by the time it gets there, it's two hundred and ten. And where do that ninety thousand barrels go? I mean, they literally, James. I mean, this sounds crazy. They literally have um, pirates that tap that drill a hole into an oil pipeline and offload oil and go sell it on the black market. I mean, they they physically steal well, they the have oil. Drug the drug cartels specialize in that down there. Yeah, and then there's politicians who keep the um, local authorities from stopping that because they get a percentage of that. I mean, it, it's horrible. And and think about in the process of legal tapping in a pipeline. Think how much crude you spill on the ground, oh. right? How many volatiles gets in the air, and nobody's wearing protective equipment. I mean, it's just it's just horrible, and it, and it needs to stop. Now, I will say this: they're going down the road to clean that up. So um, give them some time, and hopefully, they'll do the right thing. Yeah, definitely. Well, we, our next story is about a company that I, I'm looking for a little help. Knowing, and I don't know if they if they're only a retail outlet or not, but that it's a special report. Gulf Oil's new future, part one. I see there are gas stations all around Houston. Can you help me understand where Gulf Oil fits in the market? Um. So, um. God, man, Gulf was a um, um an operator years ago. Somebody, somebody needs to do a fact check on this and figure out when this happened. Then Amoco bought Gulf, and then BP bought Amoco. So, um, that. That company disappeared, although the brand is still around, right? And what happens from a marketing point of view, if you have a lot of people that are, are devout Gulf gas fans, when a company buys you, such as Amico, you keep the Gulf marketing material, the signs and the language and everything, because people are loyal to that brand. And then, you know, when BP bought Amico, of course, if that Gulf brand had market strength, they kept that wherever it is. It's funny, if you travel around the world, you'll see that. You'll see like Esso, which was what Exxon was way before it was Exxon. And it's just because that name has has market share somewhere in the world. Um, so this is this is talking about a um, a company that was started by one of the VPs that worked at Gulf a million years ago, um, and and Joe wanted to bring that name back. So he actually uh, uh, fought, founded a um, a partnership called Mercator Partnerships, and they're basically an energy inve- investment company. I think they're in Massachusetts, and what they're doing is they want that Gulf marketing name. So he went out and actually bought it. And, and, and so now he has the rights to the Gulf name. Now, I don't think he's actually going out to be a, a fully integrated uh, oil and gas company like Gulf was originally. I think what they're doing with this is they're just going to use it for retail gasoline. Um, so, But you know, it's kind of cool to see that name be resurrected. I have a lot of experience with that because I've told you before about how Dan Gilbert at Quicken Loans sold the company to Quicken, bought it back for a, a fraction of what he sold it for a few years later because the stock was was diving and everything. But he has leased, or I guess whatever you naming rights, to to continue using the word quicken in perpetuity. They they pay for that ability, and so yeah, there's a lot to be said in 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 people making that positive brand association between Intuit and Quicken Loans, even though they have nothing to do with each other. 
Yeah, I, I think it's cool because if you ever come to my office, I have a bunch of antique oil and gas signs on my wall, and one of them is a golf sign. Yeah, they've been around, yeah, like you said, forever. So, all right, we're going to go into the petrochemicals world, and we're going to start in Canada. As province looks for value-added jobs, petrochemical sector puts, it, puts up its hand. What's going on here? So Alberta's hurting right now. All the oil sands are hurting right now because it's the most expensive oil on the ground. And this is a really cool idea that you know even I didn't think of. So this is the president of Williams Energy in Canada. And basically what he wants to do, he wants to build a big um, petrochemical plant, right? They have that expensive oil that, that's not worth getting out on the, the ground and selling the global market. But what if you turn it to petrochemicals where the world has a huge need for that? I think it's an awesome idea. Then it becomes economically viable to tap in those oil sands. And the thing about oil sands, it's very, very heavy crude, which means it's very rich in petrochemicals. So um, I, I just think it's an awesome idea. Now, the problem is he's having to deal with the government. He's having to get the government buy-in, and he wants some help. He wants the government to help him stand this company up. So that's, that has not been agreed upon yet. But but I think it's an, uh, just out-of-the-box thinking by the the president of Williams Energy is a way to deal with this low crude prices. So unpack that for me then. So you were saying as a result of putting the facility there, it would make it – how is that so? So when you have crude, you have to sell it on the global market for whatever the global market price is, right? And I don't know what the price of crude, price of crude is right now for if a heavy crude for something like um, – um, OPEC or whatever, but you know, I think it's probably less than forty dollars a barrel right now. It's probably in the low thirties. So this uh, oil sands crude would have to be sold at, at you know, say whatever the current price is now, thirty five dollars or thirty dollars or twenty nine, whatever. Well, that's not economically viable because it costs them more than that to get them out the ground. But you take that same crude and you turn it to petrochemicals, and instead of that barrel being worth thirty dollars, it's now worth fifty. See how that works? So now it's because then because then you have fertilizer and all of the other petrochemicals. You have all the end products that you can sell. Whereas mm. if you sell the crude, somebody else has to buy it, have a markup, refine it, have a markup. See how that works? So mm -hmm. he's, he's basically taking the middleman out of this. Um, I, I just think it's an awesome idea. It, it should have occurred to me, but it never it never popped in my head. But it's a good solution to this low crude price market in that for that section of Canada that's hurting right now. Yeah, that is v extremely interesting. The question I have for you is about about the taxpayer money get, getting put up for it, and and it makes me think about NFL teams because they always have, you know, taxpayers paying for for NFL stadiums that owners can easily pay for themselves. Yeah, it's a little more complex than that. So okay. let, we'll talk about NFL a little bit. So yes, the owner could could pay for the stadium and everything, but that stadium brings long term money to the entire city, right? Think of all the restaurants that that benefit from having those NFL games. Think of all the jobs that are created. Um, think of all the um, taxes that are created. And so what the owner, the reason the owner wants the city to kick in is like, look, I only make money on here for each game. You make money for as long as we're in this city. And so the cities compete by offering tax incentives or breaks for that business, knowing it's good for the economy. And it's the same situation here. Building this massive petrochemical complex would be good for Alberta. And Alberta would benefit. Think of all the houses that have to be created, all the grocery stores, all the schools. Think of all the taxes that have to be uh, uh, that would be collected. Alberta would benefit for a very long time by having this built. So what Williams is doing is like, look, give me a tax break, and we'll get this thing done. Uh, you may not know this, but historically, Houston, Texas does that all the time for companies that they want a headquarters here. That we basically give them a tax break so they'll come move their people here, and uh, the Houston economy as a whole benefits from that. Well, I, I certainly know it's very easy to set up a, a business in Houston and, and 
we do pretty well at, at swaying people to come this way. So, so I guess, I guess I, maybe I can rethink my position, my staunch position on that. I do know that when LeBron James left, um, <laughs> left the Cavaliers, Cleveland, and went to Miami, they estimated that that cost the city in his absence a, in his absence a billion dollars a year. Yeah, isn't that crazy that one person can influence the economy that much? Yeah, it's insane. All right, moving on to security and safety, key drivers in oil, gas, and petrochemical industries. This is hitting on some of the things that we've been talking about a lot in terms of, of security in this industry, and this happens to be around the petrochemical uh, side of things. And my the thing that I'm wondering is what puts a pe- petrochemical plant at risk for for security? So a bunch of things. I'll tell you something. We talked about my experience in Marine Corps in the early 80s, earlier. Um, back at that time when the Cold War was still going on, the um, chemical complex in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, all the petrochemical plants there were in the top 10 non-military targets in the U.S. So if we would have gotten into war with the Soviet Union, that part of the country would have been taken out because it's so integral into our military machine. Everything the military needs comes from petrochemicals. You destroy the petrochemical uh, um, plants, the military can no longer make the ammunition, the guns, the tanks, whatever it needs to fight a war, so you lose. That's a strategy we implemented very well during World War II in Germany. We took out their manufacturing ability. They couldn't build stuff anymore, and and we ended up winning the war because of that. So the petrochemical plants are a high-value military target, but now in today's world, 2016, they're also a high-value environmental activist target and a terrorist target. Um, And unfortunately, because of the spread of technology, the ability for a bad person to get into a petrochemical plant is much higher. In the old days, you would have to physically walk in there. Now you can do it from halfway around the world. So the the plants are at high risk. If you you go to a, a, a refinery, um, the security there is almost unbelievable. You think you're walking into an FBI station, um, and it, but it's there for a reason. All you'd have to do is ex- explode a small explosive device somewhere in the, in the plant area, and you could take out you know three or four or 500 people, plus have this huge environmental catastrophe. If you're an environmental activist and a plant blew up and, and hurt the environment, you could use that for your propaganda. So um, petrochemical plants are a high-value target for multiple bad guys in this world, which is, which is a shame, but it's, it's the reality. Yeah, um, it's blowing my mind right now just absorbing all of that information. One of the things that I wanted to ask you back to the sales uh, sales type questions is because what this article talks about a lot is automating a lot of these things. And and, and one of the bottom lines that they mention is that a particular company saved $1.2 million in 2015 by switching to automated systems. Now, you and I have talked plenty about how numbers are pretty well distorted in oil and gas because there's some pretty large numbers involved. Is $1.2 million, if you're calling on a company, is that enough to get you a meeting with someone or is that just kind of like, eh? Well, so the funny thing about the answer to that question is you would think the dollar would be the, uh, the access point to the decision maker. It's not. It's the fact that you can guarantee safety. Um, and you see a lot of this now, you know, in the old days, when I used to go to a refinery, I would meet my contact at the guard shack and we would just walk back into the refinery. I mean, literally, that was it. Now you have badge systems um, where even as a visitor, you have to badge in and badge out. And if I'm attached to my contact and we both badge in together at point A, and then later the system sees me by myself trying to badge in at point C, it locks me down where I can't get out. And then security comes because that's out of the norm behavior. It knows I'm supposed to be with my contact. And then there's – if you multiply that by all the the, – 
the big data analytics you can do, it's actually really cool. And that drives a lot of efficiencies. But the oil and gas industry is not worried about the cost savings of efficiency. They're worried about the safety um, that you bring by having these efficiencies. Yeah, that reminds me of a conversation I just had with a friend of the show who was calling me up asking me about, you know, and I, and I sort of role-played role his, his cold call with him. And he started off by, you know, we can do this, this, and that 10% reduction. And, and you're not going to get people because that's, that's really not the, the problem that they're dealing with. It's, it's not, cost savings is, not, even this low crude price market, cost savings is not a major driver in the oil and gas industry. It may be important later on. It may come up. And of course, procurements could beat you up over price. But that is not what you should lead with, which by the way, if you're a salesperson listening to this, you shouldn't lead with anything. What you should do is do your research on your prospect and find out what problem they're dealing with and talk to them about that problem. Don't just have this, don't just use the same solution for every client. That that just doesn't work in today's world. Yeah, that's that's another thing I talked to our friend about is that you can't call everyone and assume that they have the problem that you're trying to solve. Yeah, and in the oil and gas industry, even if they have the problem, they may not want to fix it. Right. So you need to find a problem that they have that they want to fix. Yeah. Okay. All right. Enough of the sales coaching for this week. We're going to round it out with uh, coming full circle. This is actually a story that you shared and got mega clicks. Saudi Aramco is enabling impact. What's going on here? You know, so, you know, I, I talk about OPEC and Saudi Aramco sometimes in a way that is a bit anti-competitive compared to the rest of the oil and gas industry. And, and, and that's, that there's a lot of truth to that, especially at the political level. But when you get down to the people level of Saudi Aramco, there's great people, and they're doing some awesome stuff. They're out there trying to make things better for the planet, better for their company, better for their country. Um, there's a bunch of young people out there that, that are thinking outside the box and looking at ways to like grow their chemical business in ways that affect the environment less, looking at ways to lower the cost of things so that the people of Saudi Arabia and eventually the world benefit from um, and their hearts in the right place. You know, uh, Saudi Aramco has a division right here in Houston, and it's some of the best people in the oil and gas industry you would ever meet. So this is an article about um, how, you know, Saudi Aramco, the company, is looking at its sustainability from a commercial point of view, but also looking at ways to contribute back to the world. And it's legit. They really believe in it. Yeah, yeah. I really love the page on building a culture, uh, a safety culture, a culture of safety. And they talk about all this work they've done in schools and so forth. Moving on to the onion of the week, how to join the priesthood in nine steps. And Mark's not going to laugh. Do you have to go to, do you have to go to confession for even putting us in here? (laughs) It's actually, it was funny because I expected it to be rabidly anti-Catholic because it's the onion, but it was, it was pretty, it was pretty mild before applying to seminaries, update your highlight reel with your best performances of the seven holy sacraments, (laughs) which I thought that was pretty funny, but it just shows their, you know, so I don't want to do catechism class here, but you can actually being, uh, you know, being a lay person, you can't do a, a highlight reel of seven. You could only do actually two. Unless you're married, then that would disqualify you. So, and I, I did like the line on seminary diploma is withheld until student defeats the devil, best of three in a game of the devil's choosing. So I assume that would be involving a fiddle. <laughs> Moving on, <laughs> we have a winner, Ricky Banks. We have a winner for our Red Wing offshore bag, Ricky Banks. He's an HSE specialist at Rowan Companies PLC, which is awesome. Because Rowan Companies has been around almost as long as Red Wing. Red Wing founded in 1906. I'll have to fact check that one. I want to say it's 1906. And then Rowan in the Roaring Twenties in 1923. You must know this company by now, Mark. 
Oh yeah, they're a great company. So they um they they do a lot of offshore contract drilling services, and the cool thing about them is they have a young fleet. So even they they they're they're an old company. Their fleet is modern, up to date. They got a hand uh, a big handful of ultra deep water drill ships. They got a bunch of new jackup rigs, which means that their utilization rate is actually pretty decent, even in this low crew price market. Um, and then the other thing I love about Rowan is they're really focused on their customers. Um, even when the there was a shortage of drill ships, Rowan was not leveraging at customers trying to get the highest day rate. They're working with their customers to make sure that it was a win-win for everybody because they, they want it to be um, not a vendor, but they want it to be a partner. And, and, and they believe in that, in their, their core leadership. So great company. And how cool is it that Ricky won being an HSE specialist? <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, Ricky. Congratulations. You're going to love this bag. Trust me. Right. And I usually say, you know, tell them about it, Mark. But we have a picture from Patrick Pister, our first winner of the bag. He is holding the offshore bag there at the C-Drill office in Houston. So I'll have that in the show notes at tribrocket.com forward slash TW47. I think there's eventually going to be a bit of a story about that bag, right? Yeah, yeah. We stay tuned. We, yeah. We've got some. We got some things planned for for um, tracking. Or yeah, tracking that bag's journey um, along the way. It's it's yeah. I've been talking to Patrick about it. He's a great guy. And so Ricky, your your offshore bag is on the way. And so if you want to win a bag, it's no purchase necessary to enter or win. You can see the official rules at redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. After this episode, we've only got one more Friday. So you've got today and then next Friday. So go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast, submit your information and win yourself an offshore bag, or at least have an opportunity to win one. Let's talk about events for the big finish. Um, I, I'm not sure we've got four. I, I pulled four from your, from your, uh, uh, newsletter, which by the way, if you want Mark's events email, you can just go to tribrocket.com forward slash events and submit your information and you'll get everything sent to you. But let's just talk about uh, one or two of these. Nomads annual celebration stands out to me. Yeah, it's uh, Nomads is is one of the last bastions of the good old boy network. Um, if you've never been to a Nomads event, you need to go. Um, these are like super senior business leaders in oil and gas. And once they get, once they get to know you, you're part of the family I mean, it's just, it's, it's networking times a million. And we, so we've got that one. And then we've got uh, cybersecurity, oil and gas Canada going on, uh, Marcellus midstream. I'll have all the links to the show notes. And then there's one here in Houston, Wellsite automation. That was interesting to me. What's this about? So this is about the, the digital oil field, Like we talked about before, this is about the automation, automation, automation <laughs> of the well site, which so much of that stuff is, is done manually now, but in this low crew price environment, um, it's driving efficiencies, which means automation. This is, this is cool stuff. This is robotic, robots and remote sensors and everything else. If I get a chance, I'm actually going to make this one. Nice. And we are only two weeks away from our first Friday Q&A, and we need questions, Mark. What are some questions you could imagine people might ask? Because maybe if we give them some examples... Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there's a million things you can ask us and we'll try our best to answer it. But, you know, you may be wondering what's going to happen in upstream in, in the 2016, or you may be wanting to know, you know, w- what laws are being changed in the U.S. that's going to help the industry or hurt the industry. Um, you know, what is what is the rig count going to look at? Um, you know, what do I have to do to get a raise in this low crude price environment? <laughs> I mean, ask us anything. And if we can answer it, we will. Um, you know, we've gotten some really good questions from our from our listeners, and they keep getting better and better, which um, I love this. We, James and I are actually learning stuff from our questions. So uh, go to the link, fill out a question, and uh, hopefully we'll answer it on the air for you. Yeah, tribrocket.com forward slash QA. And last call for sponsorships, Mark. Yeah, we have one sponsorship slot left. 
Um, we sold the first uh, uh, two rather quickly. Um, the uh, underwrite sponsor sold out for all of 2016. So if you want to get your product or service or company in front of our oil and gas audience, reach out. Um, James and I will help you. And if we can't help you, we'll let you know that as well. Yeah, tribrocket.com forward slash TW47. Again, for all of our contact information and all of the links to everything we're talking about here. And I'll go quickly on the reviews. K Matt C85 says, about time with a five-star review. As a young oil and gas professional, I've been looking for a podcast like this one for a while now. Also, the side conversation about MMA are entertaining. <laughs> so <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, uh, Endless Mike 3 says, great way uh, to keep up five stars. I'm a former chemical engineer from the EPC industry who is currently back at school. This helps me in the keep me in the oil and gas loop. And then Ray Buzz says, great info, four stars, very informative, despite some unnecessary commentary and banter. So we can't, we can't, you know, you can't make everyone happy all the time, but at least we're having fun. Before we get off here, I I just, I want to thank our sponsor, Red Wing. They're they're doing a great job. You know, they've launched this whole line of flame resistant clothing. They're known for their boots um, and they're giving away some of these really cool offshore bags. So, you know, go back to the link that James mentioned and go register. You can win one of these bags. Yeah, and one last link for you, because we've heard from a lot of people that say they want to help to get the word out for the show, but they don't have an, an iTunes account to go in and do and do a, a review. And so I, you know, I did a little research and came up with a solution. So tell them about it, Mark. Yeah, so if you go to tribrocket.com forward slash share, you can actually send a tweet that's pre-populated. So, you know, I always say it takes a minute and a half. This will take 12 seconds. <laughs> 12 seconds, yeah. It actually will promote our show to everybody that's in your Twitter network. So go do it. Um, take the 12 seconds. Um, it will really help us out. Yeah, tribrocket.com forward slash share. It'll bring Twitter right up, and you just click the share button, and we and we obviously will be retweeting those, and we'll be loving it if you get the, get the help us get the word out there. With all of that said, I think it's time to go. Let's do it, Mark. Yeah, folks, do great work. Pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys. Can we laugh about something real quick? <laughs> it feels chippy in here.